0: If you uh, look in your, if you received an email, it told you what the passages would be for this week. Uh, this evening will be in Psalm 14. Uh, if you noticed in that email, or if you look at your bulletin, the text that we announced was uh, Chapter 3 of the Gospel of John, verses 14 through 16. And it was very much my intention to cover that passage this Lord's Day. But the more I prepared, the more I realized um, I wasn't going to do justice to the whole passage. And so we're in Genesis to, no, so, uh, so we're just going to do verses 14 and 15. Um, I, I, this, again, as we hope, as I develop this, I just realized that there's so much here in these first two verses, I, I wouldn't do justice to verse 16. That doesn't guarantee that this will be a shorter message. But it's shorter than if I were to include verse 16. So, so that, just so you know, because otherwise I'm afraid you might start panicking as you see where I am in verse 15 and where we are on the clock. Uh, so just these two verses uh, for, before us. But let's remember where we've been. Jesus uh, went in and to Jerusalem. You know, he cleansed the temple. Uh, and apparently uh, was doing some miracles, Sign, signs, John calls them. That's a miracle with a message. It wasn't just a miracle, but it had meaning to it. It, it said something about who God is and who Jesus is and, and authenticating him as the Messiah. As a result of that, one of the leaders in Israel, a man named Nicodemus, a Pharisee, There are only 6,000 Pharisees in Israel. A member of the Sanhedrin. There are only 70 of those in Israel. That's the the ruling uh, body. It's both Congress and Supreme Court. And he was one of them. And Jesus even calls him the teacher of Israel. Nicodemus came as a result of seeing the ministry of Jesus and said... Uh, We know who you are. You you, you have to be from God. And Jesus begins a discussion with him. I'd like to read, and our verses are verses 14 and 15, but to get that context, I'm going to go back to chapter 3, verse 1. I encourage you to, to follow in your Bible as I read through verse 15. There was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered and said to him, Most assuredly I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Most assuredly I say to you, Jesus answered and said to him, Are you the teacher of Israel and do not know these things? Most assuredly, I say to you, we speak what we know and testify what we have seen, and you do not receive our witness. If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how will you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended to heaven, but he who came down from heaven, that is, the Son of Man who is in heaven. And as Moses, list, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. So as the Lord's been speaking to Nicodemus and, and lays out and basically uh, you know Nicodemus probably wanted to talk religion and commandments and laws. And Jesus goes straight to the heart of the issue. You must be born again. Nicodemus' response is, how can these things be? And Jesus responds with, if you will, a, a reproving sense of wonder. And how can you, the teacher of Israel, not know these things? These are fundamentals. These are basics. And it's not... Something Jesus was not here saying something new. And we, we, as we developed this passage, we pointed to Old Testament texts that te- teach about the, the washing, cleansing, and renewing of the Holy Spirit to the heart. How can you, Nicodemus, not know these things? You know your Bible. How can you not know these things? And so verses 12 and 13 sort of set especially the text, uh, set the context for our text. I've told you earthly things and you do not believe. What earthly things? He's talked about being born again. These fundamental things. How will you receive if I tell you heavenly things? Then he speaks of himself. No one is ascended to heaven. But but he who came down from heaven. That is the son of man who is in heaven. And right there that's an incredible statement. I have come down and am in heaven at the same time. How can anyone be in heaven? Two places at the same time. That's impossible for us. It's only possible for God. So in that statement, Jesus makes a powerful declaration. So, But what Jesus is saying is, remember Nicodemus came and honored him with the title uh, Rabbi. That's saying a lot from Pharisee uh, and Sadducee member Nicodemus. Uh, he, was, he, was, he felt like he was honoring him. Rabbi, he said, uh, we know you must be teaching from God. And Jesus makes it clear, I'm not simply a rabbi teaching God's word. But rather he says, he is the son of man who's come down from heaven. Those are two huge statements as well. Son of man instantly to a, to a Jew who knew his scripture. Daniel chapter 7, the Son of Man is a messianic title. Come down from heaven. People that already were just wondering and amazed at John the Baptist. They thought perhaps he was a, some wondered if he was the Messiah or Elijah, certainly a prophet. And Jesus said, no, no, I'm none of those alone. I have come from heaven. No one else can declare that. I have come from heaven. I am the Son of Man, the Messiah. Come from heaven. And I speak of what I know from heaven. Then Jesus opens up the Old Testament again. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up. Now, I've tried to talk because we have gone through the bible over the years watch those connecting words and this one begins with the word and he's continuing his thought i i have come down from heaven i'm the son of man come down from heaven and as moses lifted up the servant in the wilderness even so must the son of man be lifted up so he's connecting i am the messiah come down from heaven and the Son of Man must be lifted up. And so there's quite a contrast there. We'll see that as it develops. Well, Nicodemus knew the event well. Now, as, as we read that, a lot of times that might be a... What's he talking about? Moses, serpent of the wilderness. Jesus didn't have to explain. He would just describe it and Moses and, and Nicodemus would know the passage. You know, it's interesting. We have chapters and verses in our bibles they didn't in in the time of nicodemus and jesus and so you just start the you know they would talk refer to a passage by the first word or two that's how well they knew their bibles and so as jesus describes this it's well known to us well known to him but maybe not as well known to us and so that's why we're going to spend some time looking at numbers chapter 21 now in the outline i have uh verses one to nine So I'll go ahead and read that, but what's really going to pick up for us when we get to verse 4. The king of Arad, the Canaanite, who dwelt in the south, heard that Israel was coming on the road to Atharim, and then he fought against Israel and took some of them prisoners. So Israel made a vow to the Lord and said, if you will indeed deliver this people into my hand, I will utterly destroy their cities. The Lord listened to the voice of Israel and delivered up the Canaanites, and they utterly destroyed them in their cities. So the name of the place was called Hormah, which references destruction. <coughs> then they, Israel, journeyed from Mount Hor by the way of the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom. All right. This is one of those things. When you're reading your Bible, it's, it's helpful sometimes to have a, uh, a, a map with you. Now, for you uh, old-fashioned people that use dead tree versions of the Bible... <laughs> At the back, there's a remarkable thing. There are maps. lovely maps. like mine is there's some great stuff here. In fact, I, maybe I'll even just kind of give you a, well, I'll give you a sense of it by pretending to be a map, if you will. Now I've got to have to use mirror image, so I'm looking from behind the map to you. OK When I think of Israel, I, I think of circle, line circle, Sea of Galilee, Jordan River, Dead Sea. Or salt sea. Okay, and so on the western side is what we call Israel, well, Judean, Samaria, that stuff from Israel, from the Sea of Galilee on down. I, am I doing this right? Yes. <laughs> on the eastern side is uh, the, Ammoni- the uh, uh, Ammon, Moab, Edom. Okay, And so what we're saying here is they came down from, Arad was over here at the kind of just south of the promised land. Canaanites, that's part of the promised land. They had a battle and they won. The most natural thing you would expect is we keep moving north. But God said, no, I've got a better plan. We're going to go around. Actually, uh, uh, that's good strategy. If they came in from the south, then they would face all the Canaanites in one force. But they're going to come in from the middle and kind of divide and conquer. That's the book of Joshua. We won't go there. But here's the point. They they were attacked over here by the uh, Canaanites. They prayed to God. God gave them victory. They defeated them. Here they are at the, at, at the south, southern entrance, if you will, to the promised land. They've had a victory. And God says, great. Now move south and east. And so they came around below the Dead Sea and started heading up. Now, here's the Jordan River. Most natural thing, you go along the Jordan River. You have a nice water supply, uh, vegetation. And then you come up to Jericho and shoot over. But God instead takes them around Edom through very hard wilderness. If you've seen, uh, that would be modern-day Jordan. Uh, If you've seen pictures of of Petra and the area around it, that's it. Barren, hard, dry. And instead of heading north over here, they're heading east, away from the promised land. That would be like... (coughs) uh you're going for a ride with me and 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 so we're going to go to Fort Worth we're going to go see um I was going to say the botanical gardens I suppose I should say the stockyards okay so we're going to go to Fort Worth we we head on down to Bucky's fill up the tank and then I get on to 20 heading east toward Tyler and you start saying uh what's going on here Fort Worth's that way oh I I've I've got a better route Well, so that's something of the picture of what I've just described. They journeyed, verse 4, from Mount Hor by the way of the Red Sea to go around the, around the land of Edom and the soul of the people became very discouraged on their way. Now some of you parents have taken a long trip and depending on what that is for your kids, for some that's all the way to Garland. <laughs> for some it's a longer trip to grandma and grandpa somewhere. After a while, the kids start getting a little discouraged. This is a hard area. I think I mentioned last time, I spent a week in the Sinai Peninsula with a busload of uh, students when I was at the university, and there was grumbling and complaining. And we were in a bus. It didn't have air conditioning, but we won't go on with that. They journeyed around from Mount Horeb by way of the sea to go around the land of Edom, and the soul of the people became very discouraged on the way. And the people spoke against God. And against Moses, why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no food and no water, and our soul loathes this worthless bread. That's the manna. So the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people, and many of the people of Israel died. Therefore the people came to Moses and said, we have sinned. For we have spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord that he take away the serpents from us. So Moses prayed for the people. Then the Lord said to Moses, Make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole. It shall be that everyone who is bitten, when he looks at it, shall live. So Moses made a bronze serpent and put it on a pole. And so it was. If a serpent had bitten anyone, when he looked at the bronze serpent, he lived. So I've talked a little bit about the geography, but just thinking about the time frame is remember Moses led the people out of Egypt. I put the date on that about fourteen forty six b c they remember they they Mount Sinai and all that sort of thing, and they're heading towards uh, the promised land and and Moses decides, let's go ahead and send in some surveyors. They sent twelve spies. they came back after forty days of wandering through the promised land and say It's great. They brought back this huge bunch of grapes and all kinds of stuff. It is a land flowing with milk and honey. But the Canaanites are big and fierce. They will destroy us if we try to take the land. That's what 10 of the 12 said. Two of them, Joshua and Caleb, said, God can do it. Let's go do it. God said to take the land. God is with us. And you know, they could have gone on and said, do you remember the Red Sea? Do you remember the plagues? God can do this. The the context I'm talking about, as you'll find in uh, Numbers 14, so all the congregation, Numbers 14, 1, so all the congregation lifted up their voices and cried. And the people wept that night, and the children of Israel complained against Moses and Aaron. And the whole congregation said to them, if only we'd died in the land of Egypt, or if only we'd died in this wilderness, would better to have died as slaves in Egypt, better have died in the wilderness than to go into battle and be destroyed by the Canaanites. Skip down to verse twenty-eight of Numbers fourteen, verse through thirty. Numbers forty fourteen twenty-eight through thirty. Say to them, God said to Moses. As I live, says the Lord, just as you have spoken in my hearing, so I will do to you. What did they say? I wish we had died in the wilderness. God said, well, that's what you want. Verse 29. The carcasses of you who have complained against me shall fall in the wilderness, all of you who were numbered according to your entire number from 20 years old and above. Except for Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, and Joshua, the son of Nun, you shall by no means enter the land which I swore, I would make you dwell in. So you say, it would be better to die than to take the land according to your word. All right. Then you will die in the wilderness. And take them, they're going to wander in the wilderness uh, for 40 years. While that generation dies out. They complained and God said all right have it your way Uh, that's what happened 40 years ago they have been um, there in the wilderness they have now been almost 40 years they're now on the last loop literally excuse me last loop around Edom so they can head on in but they're coming over into this hard land and they're tired and they're not trusting God to provide water for 40 years he's provided water in the Sinai peninsula for 40 years he's provided food now this miracle food that's like a pastry now they're calling it this this, this lousy food everything about them is complaining And so we see in verse 4, or verse 5, back now in Numbers 21, the people spoke against God and against Moses. Why have you brought us out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? Here we are. That's what they said, almost the same thing 40 years earlier. There's no food and no water, and our soul loathes this worthless bread. So the Lord, verse 6 of Numbers 21 Sent fiery serpents among the people. They bit the people, and many of the people of Israel died. Now, that fiery serpents uh, suggests that when it bit you, it caught a fire. You know, the poison caused you know set you on fire. Not flames, but you know, fever and, and horrible. It was a probably it was a painful sting, a bite. It was a painful disease, and it brought on a painful death. Many died. Verse 7, Numbers 21, Therefore the people came to Moses and said, We have sinned, for we have spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord that he take away the serpents from us. So Moses prayed for the people. Now, they have been learning from their experiences. They didn't just say, Look, not only is there no food and water, there are a lot of snakes. They recognize the serpents are God's chastising judgment. They had sinned against God by not trusting him for his provision and complaining against the provision that he made. And when these serpents come and they're dying painfully, they recognize this is God's judgment for our sin. So they go to Moses and they confess their sin and they ask him to pray for them. And he does pray. God, he, at various times, remember, God said, step back, I'm going to destroy the nation. He prayed and God spared them. Well, he prays now, and here's God's answer in verses 8 and 9 of Numbers 21. Then the Lord said to Moses, make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole. Obviously, that's an image, right? Not a, 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 it's, a, a, it's a replica. And it shall be that everyone who's bitten when he looks at it shall live. So Moses made a bronze serpent, put it on a pole, and so it was. If a serpent had bitten anyone, when he looked at the bronze serpent, he lived. Now notice the answer God gives Moses. They had sinned. God sent his judgment. They had confessed their sin and prayed. And what did God tell them to do? Intercessory prayers... Of Moses were not enough. Notice, though, he doesn't say, "Tell them set up an altar." You know, go to the tabernacle that had that now for almost forty years, and have have the priests offer sin sacrifices. He doesn't say that either. He doesn't say prayers are enough, or sacrifices, or a special offering, or special. He doesn't call for a fast. He st- what instead. He says to do something that is unique in the history of Israel. Moses is to make a bronze replica of the serpent and put it on a, up on a post. And so anyone who has been bitten and looks at that will be healed. There's no medicine or ritual that will heal them. If they try that, they will die. I wonder what the response of the people was. Looking at the bronze snake is going to make me well. Didn't grandfather tell us about a snake bite remedy? What was in it? Let's, let's see if we can't make up some um, medications. Special prayers. Um, all kinds of things. They, you know, imagine people were saying, no, you can't be just looking at that bronze replica of the pole. What is that supposed to do? But essentially, how did it heal? It might remind them of what happened at the Passover. Remember, you're supposed to take the blood of a lamb, put it on your doorposts and lintel. And when the judgment of God is passing through Egypt, God will pass over any home that has put the blood on the doorposts. What's the point? It was an act of faith and obedience. By now, the the Passover, that was the 10th plague God had sent on Egypt. So I'm imagining by plague 10, when he announces, here comes another plague, I imagine the Israelites are saying, here comes another plague. They're believing him. And he says, this one's going to be different. Offer that lamb, put the blood on your doorposts, and I will spare your, your firstborn." Did the blood on the doorposts in some way medicate the firstborn? No. It was was an act of believing God's promise and obeying him. And so um, in the same way, that's what's going on with the serpent. Why it's it's a way of saying, I believe God's promise and I will take him out on his word. They were to believe God and act on that belief. And so when they looked at the serpent, they were healed. Those who were bitten and looked at that bronze serpent were healed. Those who were bitten by the serpents and didn't look at the serpent died. No prayer, no medicine, no anything protected them. They died. Very clear distinction. So let's go back now to Jesus' encounter with Nicodemus. John 3, chapter 3, verses 14 and 15. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so, he said, must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. So he's saying it's the same thing as what happened in the book of Numbers. So what he's saying is what happened in Numbers, what happened in the wilderness to the east and south maybe of uh, Edom is a picture of Jesus Christ. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up. What's he referring to? That's the cross. Matter of fact, that expression, lifted up, is in John is only used of the cross. In John eight twenty eight, Jesus said to them, When you lift up the Son of Man, then you'll know that I'm he and do nothing of myself. John twelve thirty two. If I am lifted up from the earth and will draw all peoples to myself. In John twelve thirty four, the people answered him, We have heard from the law that the Christ remains forever. How can you say the Son of Man must be lifted up? Wait a minute. We were taught, the Messiah lives forever. How can you say you're going to be lifted up? Crucified. And so when he says, as the serpent was lifted up on the pole, so must the Messiah, the Son of Man, be raised up on a cross. Now, think back to Numbers and Moses. Why a serpent? Because the serpent is what had caused them their problem. Now, it wasn't, and it's interesting, he didn't say, go kill a serpent and hang it on a pole, make an image of it, a representation. Well, here, why Jesus? How is that a picture of Jesus Christ? How does the serpent represent Jesus Christ? Because when Jesus went on the cross, he took our sin on himself. By the way, serpent causing the punishment, that's, that kind of really does fit with Jesus, isn't it? How did our sin problem begin? It was a serpent bite, if you will. A talking serpent that, that, that led everyone astray, led Adam and Eve astray. Our sin begins with a serpent problem. But that serpent problem is really a sin problem. And so when Jesus saw us on the cross... He's representing the fact that he's taking our sin upon himself. 2 Corinthians 5.21 For he made him, God made him Christ, who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God. The serpent brought physical death. The serpent brought the sting of death. Sin was introduced into humanity. That's the ultimate source of death. When Jesus dies on the cross, like the serpent, he's a rep- it's, it's, our sin is on him. John 3.15 That whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. So, notice Moses didn't just make the say, well, a serpent's your problem, make a serpent. No, he had to make it up, put it on a post, put it on a pole, raise it up, and every individual affected Israelite had to personally, individually, believe the promise and look to the serpent. So, Dad couldn't go out, take a quick look at the serpent, and the whole ha- family be well. If you've got the sting, you personally must believe and look to the serpent. If you don't believe, you're not going to look. It's personal and individual. Every single one needs to look. Again, that's a picture of Christ. It's not the image that healed. It's Christ who heals us. And it's, the issue is whoever believes in him. So this doesn't mean, okay, Drake, I get it. We're going to make a picture of Christ, put him up on a cross. Everyone that looks like at him at the, at the cross will be saved. Wrong. He's not saying that. He's saying what happened with Moses is a picture. It represents it. But what he's saying is, it is an issue of personal, individual faith that looks to Christ as Savior. And that's how you gain eternal life. So as, the picture, as that serpent is a picture of Christ, Christ is bearing our sin. Looking is a picture of saving faith. So as each individual dying Israelite had to personally look at the snake, every single human being is dying of sin. All has sinned and falls short of the glory of God. The wages of sin is death. Every single human being is dying, physically, spiritually. And the only solution is to trust in the Lord Jesus Christ personally, trusting in him as Savior. When I thought of this passage, I was reminded of an incident in a the life of a Baptist preacher. I don't know if I've ever mentioned him. His name is Charles Spurgeon. He lived back in the 1800s. Well, before he ever was a preacher, he was the grandson and son of preachers. Raised in a godly home. We heard the gospel constantly. But as a young child, it was January 6th, 1850. So I was looking at my calendar and getting all excited oh it's the 6th but we're off by a month it was january 6th 1850 it was a snowy day um no i'll just read some of his words i sometimes think i might have been in darkness and despair until now had it not been for the goodness of god in sending a snowstorm okay from what we've just been through good One Sunday morning, while I was going to a certain place of worship, this snowstorm had come. When I could go no further, I turned down a side street and came to a little primitive Methodist chapel. In that chapel, there may have been a dozen or 15 people. I had heard of the primitive Methodists, how they sang so loudly they made people's heads ache. That didn't matter to me. I wanted to know how I might be saved, and if they could tell me that, I, I didn't care how much they made my head ache. The minister did not come that morning. He was snowed up. I suppose. At last a very thin looking man. A shoemaker or tailor or something of that sort. Went up into the pulpit to preach. Now it is well that preachers should be instructed. But this man was. I'm sorry. I'm just reading what he said. This man was really stupid. (laughs) He was obliged to stick to his text. For the simple reason that he had little else to say. So if you're going to teacher, preacher, Bible lesson, and you don't know what to say, well, stick with the text. The text was, Look unto me and be saved all the ends of the earth. That's Isaiah 45, 22. He didn't, even know, he didn't even pronounce the words rightly. But that didn't matter. There was, I thought, a glimpse of hope for me in that text. The preacher began thus, My dear friends, this is a very simple text indeed. It says, look. Now, now look and don't take a deal of pains. It ain't lifting your foot or your finger, it's just look. Well, a man needn't go to college to learn to look. You may be the biggest fool, and yet you can look. A man needn't be worth a thousand a year to be able to look. Anyone could look, even a child can look. But then the text says, look unto me, I, said he, in broad Essex. Many on ye are looking to yourselves, but it's no use looking there. You'll never find any comfort in yourselves. Some look to God the Father. No, look to him and by and by. Jesus Christ says, look unto me. Some on ye say, we must wait for the spirit working. You have no business with that just now. Just look to Christ, the text says. Look unto me. And so he talks about Jesus Christ on the cross and says, look unto Christ. When it got on to about that length, he managed to spin out 10 minutes or so. And he was at the end of his tether. Then he looked at me under the gallery, and I dare say with so few present, he knew me to be a stranger. Just fixing his eyes on me as if he knew all my heart, he said, Young man, you look very miserable. I've thought about trying that some Sundays. <laughs> well, I did. But i would not been accustomed to have remarks made from the pulpit on my personal appearance before. However, it was a good blow. Struck right home. He continued, And you always will be miserable. Miserable in life, miserable in death, if you don't obey my text. But if you obey now, this moment, you'll be saved. Then, lifting up his hands, he shouted as only a primitive Methodist could do Young man, look to Jesus Christ. Look, look, look. You have nothing to do but look and live. I saw at once the way of salvation. I now know not what else he said. I I didn't take much notice of it. I was so possessed with that one thought. Like as when the brazen serpent was lifted up. The people only looked and were healed. So was with me. I had been waiting to do 50 things. But when I heard that word, look, what a charming word. It seemed to me. He goes on to talk about that's what he did. He trusted in Christ. It's interesting, he said, I've been looking to do 50 things. I have at times shared Christ with people and get the response. That sounds too easy. Just believe. That doesn't seem right. Matter of fact, on that bus trip in Sinai Peninsula one time, I had the opportunity to share my faith in Christ around the fire. And and later on, I was on the other side of the bus and I heard some of them talking. They're saying, no, that just can't be right. It's, you've got you've to live right to earn salvation. See, that's so natural to the human mind. I've got to do something. Why? Well, if salvation's a gift, you can leave it any way you want. Of course, there's answers to that. If God truly saves your soul, you're a different person. You're going to live differently, but you don't live differently to get to heaven. Salvation is a gift received By looking in faith to the Savior. See, think about those people in the wilderness. They had the horrible pain of the sting. And they believed God's promise. Perhaps they'd already tried some medicines. Perhaps they'd tried to cut open the wound and let the the poison out. Whatever they did, they realized there was no other way. And they believed the promise of God and they looked. Each one personally. You're not a Christian. You're not saved because your family is Christian. You're not saved because your family went to church. So many have that idea. Oh, my family are this religion or that religion, this church or that church. That's that's good. That's nice. What about you? Have you personally, individually seen your need of the Savior and looked to him in saving faith? When I was wrestling with, what does it mean to be a Christian? I was raised in normal church-going family, when I say church-going, rarely. As people shared Christ with me on the college campus, and I was wrestling with, does God exist? That was my first response when someone shared the gospel. I said, that's very interesting what you've told me, but you say, Jesus is God's son. I don't know if there's a God, so I don't know what to do with what you just told me. And then God surrounded me with Christians who were giving me their testimony of trusting in Christ. And I was really wondering if, if God exists. And, if, and finally I decided, well, if God exists, he'd show me the way. And I won't go through all the details, but eventually I found myself after wrestling and I was finally reading a tract that was the first tract I ever saw, but now it's reading again with new lights. And I was reading through it and it talked about, well, we must recognize that God exists. I got that. That God is loving. Got it. That you're a sinner. I believe that. That Christ died for your sin. I believe that. I kept thinking, but something's missing. And then I read that we have to personally trust in Jesus Christ as Savior. Well, that was it. No one told me to look. Well, probably they told me to look, but I didn't understand to look. God in his mercy gave me the the grace to look to Christ. And I said, that's it. And right then, I trusted in Jesus Christ as Savior. Just about every time we sing, and can it be, you know, about thine eye diffused a quickening ray, I woke. The dungeon, I see myself back there, finally getting it. Just trusting in Christ as Savior. But I must personally trust in Christ. I don't just believe the facts. I'm looking to him as my Savior to save me from my sin. I hope that's clear in your life. I hope you've trusted in him as Savior. Don't make me call you out as a miserable-looking person and ask you. Trust in Him. Know Him as Savior. And is it amazing? The serpent represents the Savior. How can that be? Because He took my sin on Himself. Because He took my wrath on Himself. Paul said He became sin. He he became the serpent. To bear the wrath of the Father. So that I didn't need to bear the wrath of the Father. Because I looked to him. Are you clear in those points? Charles Spurgeon, he he, he was reading Puritans at the age of five. He had heard many a sermon. He would heard many a text. He would heard many an exhortation. But is it clear in your heart the need to personally trust in Jesus Christ to save you from the wrath of God for your sin? Trust in him. Is it clear when you're telling people what it means to be a Christian? The issue is the need to personally recognize my need And turn to Christ in in saving trust. May God give us the grace for the clarity of that. And to, to share that clarity with others. Father, thank you for your saving grace in Christ. Thank you for your love and mercy toward us. Father, I do pray if any here have yet to comprehend it. to to truly trust in Christ as a personal, individual response. Father, I pray even now you'd open the eyes of faith that they might believe. Father, perhaps as we have been thinking about this text, our, our heart has turned to loved ones. And we see them struggling in religion and effort and doing this and not doing that. And what they need is to look to Christ. Oh, Father, I pray we join our hearts together and pray for those loved ones. That you might open their eyes to see the Savior on the cross and and look to him in saving faith. Father, I thank you. That is through your grace, through faith, that we have life. And that the needs of your justice were met through Jesus Christ. And I thank you that even as we come from here to the Lord's table, we remember he gave himself that we might have forgiveness in life. Lord, we worship you for that in Jesus' name. Amen.